I would like to welcome everyone signing on with us on Facebook Live or on our podcast later or on our, on our Facebook Live later. Some people do that as well. Let's go, peeps. All right, it is my great joy to welcome you today. My name is Josh Houston. I'm one of the pastors here. How was your week? Let's do thumbs up. Who had thumbs up week? All right, who had a thumbs sideways week? All right, who had a thumbs down week? Grace and blessing all over you. Glad you're with church family today. Today, we are wrapping up our January sermon series, Freedom in Discipline. This month, we've delved into spiritual disciplines. In case you're not familiar with that term, spiritual disciplines are spiritual exercises. They're these these exercises that form our hearts. They shape our character. Um, They're part of our training in, in forming us into the likeness of Jesus. And how they work is they cause us to collide with God. And when that happens, our hearts are opened. Our spirits are expanded. And God, he offers us wholeness and new power and new freedom. Um, This is what we've talked about for the month of January, discovering freedom in discipline. So this month, we intentionally hit some of the less popular ones, some of the less talked about ones. Three weeks ago, I spoke about freedom in simplicity. Two weeks ago, I spoke about freedom in silence and solitude. Last week, I spoke about freedom in confession. It's been a fun month. I encourage you to go back and listen to any of the messages if you missed them, Facebook Live or our podcast on the website. Today... We're going to tie a bow on this series. I want to preach a message entitled Freedom in Celebration. Freedom in Celebration. Now, I've done a lot of work on the spiritual disciplines over the years. Um, There's something I I particularly feel drawn toward. Um, I've read a lot on them. And much of the contemporary conversation that revolves around the discipline of celebration, it tends to be this thin and very surface-level approach. Um... Personally, I love to read authors who are dead. Anybody know what I'm talking about? People who have, who've been dead for a long time, there's, just, there's some deeper stuff to it, right? And I'm not saying it's the opposite if people are living, but if you read some of the mystics, if you read some of the, the classic contemplatives, you'll discover that they were enthralled by this idea of joy, that joy is the fuel for living in the way of Jesus, that, that knowing who we are, that knowing whose we are, it fills our spirits with joy, and that joy is what transforms us, and it empowers us to live into the kingdom of God. And I agree, joy is one, it's one of the end goals. If you read John 15, Jesus says, I, my, I'm calling you to abide in me so that my joy may be in you. It's, it's something that we're, we're bring, being brought into and brought in the fullness of <clears throat> And what Jesus wants to do is place his joy so deep in us that no matter what's going on around us, there's this inner contentment. There's this inner peace that we're not rocked by circumstances, that that we can be protected. Even our emotions and our thought life can be protected by joy. So joy is this deep, it's this abiding contentment and trust in the faithfulness of God. And what we discover in joy is that it gives room for our emotions, It gives room for our thoughts. So confusion and anger and sadness and grief, they can be held inside joy. And we see this with Jesus. There's moments where he's confused. There's moments when he gets angry. There's moments where he's sad. There's moments when he's grieving. Yet he never loses this like deep bottom bass note of joy that holds the whole thing together. And it's a a deep trust in his Abba, Abba Father 
in, in the Father's faithfulness. And so what we see over time is that joy produces the kind of people who can celebrate. And we see this in Scripture. People who know God, who love God, who trust God are people who celebrate. However, and this is what I want to touch on regarding that kind of thin surface level conversation regarding celebration. The way celebration, this discipline is often talked about, is that Christians should be happy people. That Christians should be the best party throwers. And in some sense, sure, sure. This week, though, I've been kind of pulling it down a deeper level. Shouldn't we ask the question, where's the celebration coming from? What's fueling the party? Because this isn't just about becoming people who can celebrate. I think if we peel back the happy to find out what the root is down there, because what I've discovered in ministry, people can hide in celebration. And we, Christians are really good at finding scripture to back up dysfunctional behavior, broken ways of living. Jesus was a partier. He showed up to a wedding where everybody was already drinking, and then he made more wine for everybody. Is that permission to, to join in more celebration, to hide in our celebration? Heck yes. Mm, I don't think so. In ministry, I walk with people through awesome, joyful situations and through confusing and painful and, and suffering ones as well. And I've seen a lot of people choose celebration, choose happy, choose the party as a way of avoiding reality, as a way of avoiding pain or denying conflict or afraid of failure. So let's celebrate. But the problem with using celebration this way is that it just becomes one more coping mechanism. Possibly a less destructive one, arguably, but still it's stemming from a place of fear, from a place of insecurity, from a place of denial, and this doesn't address our brokenness. It just merely hides it. You ever met a really happy Christian, but it was like a plastic happy? Like it was manufactured, like it was covered with cliche phrases that you know they didn't believe deep down in their bones. Like the happy came out of a bunch of shoulds, or that they were hoping to bypass their misery by choosing happy. But if you're familiar with God, you know that most often he desires to transform our misery, not bypass it. So I want to touch on this today. I want to talk about how God meets us wherever it is that we find ourselves. And there we discover we're accepted and we're invited to celebrate. And particularly what I want to unpack today is that we're invited to celebrate others. This is really what I want to poke at this morning. Do we have the courage to celebrate someone else? I want to show you a story Jesus told to demonstrate what celebration looks like in the kingdom of God. If you brought your Bible or your Bible app on your smartphone, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book of the New Testament. We got Bibles back on the connection table if you want to hold something. I always say I like the smell of a Bible. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The pages are different. It's not like a normal book, right? That's the smell of holy. <laughs> I'll have the text up on the screen as well if you're just lazy. That's okay. This is uh, Jesus' is one of his more famous parables. Um, probably one of his most well-known, but if you're, and, and, and you might have heard this many times in your life. Maybe you've even done a Bible study on it yourself. But my prayer for you coming into this weekend has been that God would 
give you fresh eyes and fresh ears to hear something and see something new that maybe you've never seen before. And we're going to do this story in two parts. We're going to start, uh, this is Luke 15, starting in, in verse 11. So Jesus told uh, two different parables first, the parable of the lost sheep, and then he tells the parable of the lost coin. Then Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to, to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out, I'll go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is a fun one. I want to just do some context for you a little bit. We've got a fairly wealthy father. He's got two sons, one of whom, the younger son, asks for his share of the estate. Now, this demand doesn't translate well into English. And I was thinking about language this week. I was even, Jenny had a Facebook post. It was funny. I was like writing this stuff and you did that post. It's just about how like fascinating words are, right? How, and I, particularly, I was thinking through how, how fascinating translation is because Translation is never as simple as this word means this thing. Language is intricately attached to culture as well. There are phrases and idioms and expressions that when you translate them into a different language, they lose their flavor, they lose their color, especially when you translate it literally. Think of phrases like break a leg, right? Or that's so cheesy. Or let's shoot the breeze. All this to say... The demand of the younger son here, it might sound like a mere, hey, pops, I'd like to receive now what's due to me later. There's way more going on there. To, to Jesus' listeners, this request was packed with offense. Because in order for his father to give his, the son half the estate, it meant half of everything had to be sold. So half the land, half the possessions, half the animals, half the food, He's saying, Father, sell half of everything, literally half of everything you have. I want cash right now. And to, to complicate this even more, to compound the inconvenience, this isn't just a material cut. It's a relational cut as well. Because in this, in this culture, if the son was going to receive his share, the father had to die. The younger said, give me my share. But what he said is, Father, you're as good as dead to me. Jesus' audience, it would have been, they would have been appalled by this story. The notion that, that a father, first off, that a son would demand this, 
is ridiculous. It's outlandish. Before the father passed, this, is, is, this does not happen. And to, to the enormous surprise, I could just picture the listeners, the father actually gives him what he asks for. It's like, sure, here, here you go. Takes off. Jesus continued, the son takes the cash, goes off to a distant country. Again, this is packed with meaning. He's not just saying, the son wanted to travel the world. He's like, I graduated college. I don't have to pay back my student loans yet. I'm just going to go backpack through Europe. It's not like that. It's not what's happening. Jesus' story is about a son who's cutting ties with his family. He's abandoning a way of life that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation before him. It's a betrayal of his tradition, of his lineage. He's saying, I'm done with you, family. I'm off to do my own thing. I'm leaving home. And he takes off. He leaves the protection. He leaves the care of his good father. He leaves, and he lives as though he does not have a home. He's looking anywhere but home for home. And he quickly finds himself lacking. He spends the entire savings that was given to him. He spends it on sensual living, and now he's hanging out with pigs. He's thinking about eating their food, and he thinks to himself, man, don't, don't, eat, don't my father's servants, his hired servants, even have it better than I do right now? He now is nothing to no one. He's lost, and his lostness brings him to his senses. I need to go home. But you notice how he does it? I'm going to head back home. I'm going to tell my father I've sinned against him, and I'm going to ask him if I could be one of his servants. He believes his father is going to need an explanation. He believes the father's love is conditional, like the rest of the world that he just experienced. So he diminishes himself below his true identity. No longer son. I'm content just being a hired servant. All this while the father is eagerly awaiting for his son, eagerly waiting for his son to come home. All this while the father is eagerly waiting to tell him, there's nothing you could ever do that could take away your sonship. You're completely mine, always mine, not because of how well you perform, but because my love for you is wild beyond what you could imagine. Jesus says the father sees him a ways off. And he runs to embrace him once again. Outlandish Jesus in this culture, fathers. Don't run. This is a culture of honor and respect. A father would never engage in a childlike sprint, especially not to a child, especially not to a child that just abused his love. But this father. Oh, this father. He's been waiting. He's been longing for his son's return he sees his son at a distance, and he sprints to him. He throws his arm around, arms around him. He kisses him. He cuts him off before he can even finish his explanation. Throw a robe around him. Give him a ring. Sandals for his feet. Get the fat calf. Kill it. We are going to throw a party right now. There's going to be a celebration that is about to go down. We're throwing a block party. My lost son is home, and I'm going to lavish, lavish love on my son. Man, these, these people listening to the story must have just, this doesn't happen. What is this about? This audacious love from this father. What love? However, the story's not done yet. You see, while the story is often titled the parable of the lost son, this is not a parable of one lost son. This is a story of two lost sons. The younger son is obviously lost. He's immature. He's entitled. He's foolish. What he did was wrong. 
Everybody knows it, including himself. This is classic human failure. Redemption, reconciliation, homecoming. It's a touch more difficult, however, to see how lost the older son is. And this is who I want to zoom in on today, because all, all the while, while all of that's going down, the older son was taking care of his responsibilities. Jumping back in on verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come, he said. He replied, your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. The older son, he was the good son. Faithful, obedient, admired, outwardly no faults. But when his father decides to celebrate, when he decides to, to honor and cherish the rebellious younger brother, this older brother's nasty side comes out. So much so that he refused to even go into the party. His father comes out to plead with him. But the son's cry follows, I've slaved for you. Obedient, responsible, loyal, yet you never even gave me a goat party. Why don't I get thanked? Where's my honor? Where's my respect? Where's my party, Father? In the older son's complaint, do you hear how obedience to his father has become a burden? How service has become slavery? And what happens is anger towards his brother changes how he views his dad. The father responds, my son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. We're celebrating because your lost brother is home. Come celebrate him with me. In this parable, Jesus is describing the kind of celebration that goes down in the kingdom of God. Our Heavenly Father is bursting with love for his children. And in case you're wondering, that means all humanity, not just Christians. All of humanity. He's bursting with love for all of his children. And this is the invitation he extends to us. Come celebrate your brother with me. Come celebrate your, your brother with me. What the older brother can't seem to accept is his father's, his father's kindness. And this is the core of what Jesus is getting at in this story. Our Heavenly Father is really, really gracious. Jesus says the Father is so gracious. He's so audaciously gracious, it's worth celebrating. He's so wildly generous and forgiving and compassionate. His love is so all-inclusive, it's worth throwing a fattened calf party. And you get a choice. Do you want to mope? Do you want to stand outside and complain about the father's generosity towards another sibling? Or do you want to join the party? You see, the prodigal son is a story 
It's not, not of, a, of a good son and an evil son, but a story about two lost sons and a story about a good father who meets both sons exactly where they are. Just as they are, not as they should be, and he offers them both kindness right there. And you see two responses. The younger brother allows himself to be loved. He allows himself to be welcomed home from his lostness. But the older brother, he can't move past his anger. He can't move past his judgments or his narcissism to let the father heal him too. The older son demonstrates this competitive approach to life and relationships. Comparison and rivalry and jealousy. Jesus says in the father's love, in the father's home, there's no rivalry. We're all on the same team. We all bleed the same blood because we all bear the image of the divine. We're all children of the same benevolent heavenly father. The older son is lost. And he will stay lost as long as he keeps comparing himself against his younger brother. And with eyes of comparison, his brother's going to appear more loved than he is. In fact, by the end of the story, he can't even see his brother as family anymore. He calls him this son of yours. He's not even my brother anymore. And this is what happens outside God's home. Family, neighbors, immigrants, bosses, bus drivers, baristas, they become enemies. People outside my belief system or sexual orientation or political party or socioeconomic status, outside God's home, we convince ourselves they're not even brothers or sisters anymore. It's so lost. It's such a deep and profound lost that we can't even see we're family anymore. There's two lost brothers. And I was thinking about this. While the older son is the focus today, I have a hard time teaching this parable without preaching the gospel. So excuse me for a moment. In case you find yourself identifying with the younger son today, or in case you've never heard the gospel, or in case you've heard the gospel so many times it feels more like old news than good news, I want to share it with you. (laughs) Maybe you've walked away from God our Father. Whether a slow and subtle drift away from home or an aggressive giant middle finger to God, attempting to find home outside of home, outside of the only place you're truly home, you're invited back. If your heart's warming to this message, you have to hear there's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing you could do to redeem your excuses or your mistakes. The only thing necessary for your redemption is to walk back home to your Heavenly Father to let yourself be loved by him. His grace is bigger and grander than you can imagine, and there's nothing you can do, there's nothing you've done that can change the way he feels about you. He loves you right now as much as he ever has and as much as he ever will. Nothing that exists can separate you from the love of God. I love this story so much because Jesus paints this picture of God for his listeners, and the way Jesus paints it is that that if God, if the heavenly Father were to meet you face to face in your home tonight, if he were to physically show up to you, knowing all of the skeletons that you hide in your closet, all of your hidden agendas, all your dark desires, completely seeing you, 
all the things you hate most about yourself, the things that you're ashamed of, if he physically revealed himself to you tonight, you would be so overwhelmed by his compassion and his tenderness and his affection and his acceptance of you. That if he showed up to you, you would, you would experience his absolute devotion to you. That you don't have to change, you don't have to grow, you don't have to clean yourself up, you don't need more spiritual insight or spiritual maturity. Jesus communicates the most urgent need in your life is to trust that you are loved and accepted just as you are, not as you should be, because none of us are as we should be. He teaches us that the Heavenly Father says, he looks at you today and he says, more pleasing to me than all of your prayers and all of your best efforts and all of your religious practice is that you believe I love you. That you are my son, that you are my daughter, far beyond how well you perform. It's so important we get this. You did not choose God. God chose you. From all eternity, you've been engraved in his palm. Before you were touched or thought of, God was forming you in secret. Before your name was, was known, he was forming you in your mother's womb. And what we learn from Jesus in the Gospels is that following him is not about learning to know God or love God. It's about being found by God and known by God and loved by God. This is what Jesus' life in preaching did. It had one aim. It was to reveal the furious and limitless love of God for us. And then to show the way back home to that love. So that the, that the real sin is denying God's first love for you. It's ignoring your original beauty. So Jesus beckons us, get out of the pig pen. Stop trying to find God's love in a world that will leave you empty. Come home. Because as long as you're looking for love away from home, like the younger son, you will remain lost. But the older son, his lostness is more disguised. Maybe you haven't walked away from God, but your love for others doesn't really resemble love much anymore. We have the tendency to get jealous when others are doing, being successful, when others are doing well, when others excel beyond us, when others get the attention that we're not getting. You know when like, you wanted that promotion at work, but the jerk? Who, by the way, you're far more talented than, obviously, they got their promotion. Why is it so difficult for us to celebrate them? Do we truly believe that passive aggression, or maybe just aggression, is going to make the world a better place? What if you took him or her out for a drink after work? Not pseudo-celebration, real celebration with him or her. Real celebration of him or her. It's so awesome you got the promotion. You're going to crush it. I believe in you. Do we really believe dishonoring them through rivalry and through jealousy is going to help anyone, even ourselves? Our, our Heavenly Father invites us, come celebrate your brother or sister with me. I think one of the reasons we have such a difficult time with this is because we take ourselves so dang seriously. Too, too many Christians have this, the, the inner spring, it's just coiled so tight I know followers of Jesus who are dull and boring. When you pay close attention to Jesus in the Gospels, though, this is not the way he comes off. 
In fact, it was the opposite. He was so full of joy and celebration, he was accused of being a drunk and a glutton. Now, this isn't encouragement to lose ourselves in, in sinful pleasure, but I think just how like the body can be physically overworked as we're pursuing physical health, health the, the spirit can be overworked as we're pursuing spiritual health as well. So what celebration does is it invites us to relax and to enjoy the good things in life. I think Christians might represent Jesus better if more, more of us were secure enough in ourselves to laugh at ourselves. Secure enough to admit we're not as big a deal as we would like to think we are. Secure enough to admit all of us are completely replaceable. You see, what celebration does is it levels the playing field. Because when we show up to the festival of God, all the powerful and the esteemed, they're grounded. And all the, the weak and lowly are elevated. The party we're invited to, it summons the wealthy and the poor and the powerful and the powerless. All of us to celebrate the glory and the wonder and the goodness and the grace of God. Celebration frees us from taking ourselves so seriously. It frees us from an inflated view of self, but also a deflated view of self, of our own importance, of our own necessity. And when that happens, we're given new eyes to see the world, to see people as our Heavenly Father does, where others don't look so other, where others begin to appear less threatening or offensive or unspiritual. We're invited to join the party and celebrate our brothers and sisters. We're invited to make noise. What do kids do when they celebrate? I have a four-year-old daughter. What do they do when they celebrate? They make lots of noise. They laugh and they sprint. They care very little about their appearance or how they're going to be viewed over this celebration. We're invited with Jesus to laugh. We're invited into hilarity and in celebration and sometimes to look stupid, to let go of that annoying burden to always sound profound. The Father is just constantly throwing celebration and parties, ever celebrating the return of his children, ever joyful over his abounding love over his kids, and he beckons, join me. My love is not a limited resource. It's big enough for all of humanity. It's big enough for all of creation. Come celebrate your brother or your sister with me. Now, it's easy to miss the conclusion of this story, of this parable. I did for years. For a long time, I thought the ultimate call, the ultimate goal, was to return home to the father. Whether you identify more with the younger son or the older son, the father invites us home, but there's a call that's greater than returning home. It's the call to be, to be the father in the story, to become the father. The great invitation is to become the father, welcoming lost ones home, inviting others to the celebration. I want to say that again. The great invitation is to become the father, welcoming lost ones home, inviting others to the celebration. This is what the spiritual disciplines do. They cause us to collide with God, and they transform our likeness into his. We're already made in the image of God, but being made into the likeness of God takes a lot of work and a long time. So we engage in disciplines like celebration, and over time, we're transformed by God into God. 
We're transformed by him into him. What does it look like? It looks like celebrating when the celebration is not about you. To joy with and for those receiving things you're not receiving. To celebrate with those you could be envious of because the Father's celebrating them. Church, there's a party going on. And it's your choice on whether or not you want to join the celebration. It's your choice if you want to be too caught up in your own pride, in your own anger, in your own lostness that's going to prevent you from celebrating the good things God is doing in those around you. What Jesus longs for through this parable is that the hands that forgive, the hands that heal and love and celebrate others, that they would become our hands. And you're going to remain spiritually immature as long as the father in the story remains someone else. The father in the story must become your story. To grieve as he does for the lost. To forgive as he does. To be generous with our stuff as the father is generous. And as we become the father in the story, our mission refocuses. We now remain home. So other lost sons and daughters can come home and find refuge through us. This is a call to selflessness, to leave the care of ourselves unto God and to take part in the redemption of those around you, grieving for them, offering them forgiveness, offering them generosity, offering them celebration, throwing fat calf parties for other people. I want to invite our worship team to come back up. We're going to go into a time of response to God in worship through song and prayer. We're going to have a couple prayers back at the connection table as well. I don't know what's going on in your heart right now. I don't know what's going on in your mind right now and in your emotions right now. My prayer is that coming into this message, this would stir something in you. And it's probably different for each one of you, and that's great. There's not a right way to respond here other than can you, can, can you tap into what it is that Jesus is attempting to speak to you right now? And sometimes we're like, what is that, what is that like? How do, we, how do we know what God's voice is? How do we know what God's voice sounds like? Most often, it's through our own thoughts. So as you sit in this, what's bubbling up? What's kind of lingering in the back of your mind? Address that. Look at that. Inspect it. Offer it up to God as a gift. Maybe it's anger and bitterness towards someone. Maybe it's someone specifically that you're frustrated with. Or maybe you're frustrated at God because they're getting the stuff that you wish you had. We like to blame others for how our life is going. Sometimes we're just making it messy and dark and murky. You want to change the world? Start with you. God, here's my heart. I want to be like you. So we're going to go into a time of response, and maybe you need this song sung over you. This song is about the Father's love. We have prayers at the back by the table who would love to stand with you and pray with you. Maybe you don't even know how to express what's going on, but you just need someone to pray over you. If you're lost today and you need to come home, I want to encourage your heart. There's grace and grace and more grace waiting for you. No matter how screwed up you think you are, no matter how irredeemable you think you are, your Father, your Heavenly Father is waiting with open arms for you. He's ready to sprint to you. 
This morning, he sets his gaze, he sets his affection, he sets his devotion on you, and you will never lose your belovedness as his son or daughter. Never. Now, you may not know what the journey home looks like. That's okay. If you need to talk to somebody, I would love to. Nick would love to talk with you. We have staff that would love to talk with you. Pray with you. But it requires a decision. Repentance means to turn around, to walk the opposite direction. It requires a decision. It requires the courage to go back home to where you were already accepted. And then once home, we're called to celebrate, to join God in his all-consuming love for his kids. And I want to challenge you to ask yourself this morning, who in your life can you celebrate? Who can you affirm or encourage or maybe brag about to other people or maybe even throw them a party? Who can you celebrate because they could really use some inspiration right now or maybe they're just awesome? I want you to ask yourself that. Offer that up to God. God, can you put someone on my mind and on my heart that you're celebrating, that you want to invite me into that party to join with you in? Because there's a party going on, and it's your choice on whether or not you want to be there or if you want to stand outside. If you want to remain outside the house and complain about how generous the Father is, or if you want to be the one that offers up the first toast. As we find freedom and celebration. So Jesus, we offer you our hearts in this moment, the places where all of us, including myself, are dirty and shameful, where we hide, where we're broken, where we choose narcissism and fear and, and jealousy and greed. God, we offer this up to you in this moment as best we can. If we could fix ourselves, we could, we would. But because we can't, we, we lay ourselves before you and we ask that you transform our hearts into yours so that we could be a people that celebrate and honor people the way you do, God. Give us hearts that pursue you. Pray that you stir us this morning, God, that you would draw us back home and give us the courage to celebrate other people. We ask this in faith in your name, Jesus. Amen.